Well, that was great. I, I hope you guys know me a little bit better now. I'm being recorded right now. That's so great. Thank you to our wonderful tech team for doing that. Uh, if you want to hear any of the talks from this series, just go to BallStateCrew.com. We have all of them for you. We actually have all of last semester's talks for you, too. So if you want to listen to those, that'd be great. We're now three quarters of the way through our current talk series on making sure that our lives count by living in light of eternity. And so last week, we heard from my wonderful wife, Sarah, right? About the fact that we do not have to be anxious as followers of Jesus Christ because he's going to provide everything that we need. And next week, we're going to be hearing from my dear friend, Ray Schaff, and I'm really excited for that. He's speaking on making disciples. And so it's important tonight, though, we have some groundwork to lay before we get to making disciples next week. Because if our lives are not yielded to King Jesus, we can be certain that our efforts to make disciples will not yield and produce yielded lives in the lives of others. We have some important and weighty truths to wade through tonight, but they're truths that no Christian can afford to ignore. It's tragedy when Christians do neglect these truths. It is incredibly sad when the lives and decisions of Christians are nearly indistinguishable from those of unbelievers. Often the fear of upsetting or disappointing family and the costliness of following Jesus dictate the choices that we make in our daily lives. So tonight my goal for us is, is not only to uncover the cost of discipleship, but also to show the riches that come with abandoning all else to follow Jesus Christ. I do need to make one important disclaimer before I begin my talk tonight. Our passage tonight and the concept of truly following Jesus Christ is for the Christian. And so tonight I'm speaking to those of you who've been confronted with your sin and confessed it, confess your spiritual brokenness, and trust wholly on Jesus Christ to make you right before the one true God. For anyone here tonight who's not a Christian, there is no cost for you to count since you're not following Jesus currently. If this describes you personally, I'm really glad you're here. And I want you to consider throughout the night if what Jesus says that he will give in return for following him is worth it or not. While it may sound attractive initially to not incur the cost of living under the rule of Jesus Christ, I hope that by the end of the night that you'll see that the joy and riches that you're forfeiting are not worth it. There are three books that I'm going to be borrowing from really heavily tonight. The first is The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The second is Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. And the third is the ESV Study Bible. I highly recommend all three of these. These are in incredible resources that are well worth the cost. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can turn to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 34 through 39. If you don't have your Bibles with you, the passage will be behind me on the screen. Um, I'd like to make a quick plug before we start reading, though. Uh, to, I, I would really recommend using a hard copy version of the Bible over a Bible app on your phone. And so I'm not trying to say this to shame anyone, so don't look at the person next to you who's using their phone condemningly. I understand the convenience of using your phone, um, and, and I often use that as well, but uh, I find there's a level of distraction that happens when there's ESPN alerts going off and texts and Snapchats coming in while you're trying to read and understand the Word of God. 
And so chapter headings, page breaks, easily seeing the surrounding context of the passage and the ability to underline, highlight, and write in your Bible are just some of the great things, uh, some of the reasons that I would argue using a hard copy Bible and bringing that to crew and to church every week is well worth it. So, okay, on to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray tonight that you would meet us where we're at, that you would soften our hearts so that we would be receptive to what you want to do in our lives. I pray that the product of tonight would be yielded lives that are excited to follow Jesus Christ no matter what temporary cost might be. Amen. Okay, the the Jesus that we find here at the end of chapter 10 seems a little bit harsh at first glance, right? It's maybe even at odds with some of the other claims that he makes elsewhere in the Bible. So Jesus begins by starting that he came to this earth to bring a sword that will cause not only division, but division within families. This may seem a little bit contradictory when held against passages like Isaiah 9 that describes Jesus as the Prince of Peace, or Matthew 15, where Jesus looks out upon a crowd and has great compassion for them. So how can we hold this passage in tension with other passages in the the New Testament, in the Gospels? How can Jesus simultaneously claim to love people while issuing stern warnings concerning the division that he's going to cause in families? Sadly, many families and individuals seek to find life, hope, meaning, and joy in sources other than Jesus Christ. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. To love and align ourselves with anything or anyone other than Jesus is to fall into idolatry, and idolatry is always an enslaving and harmful substitute. Jesus desires our well-being, and it's his jealous love for us that will not allow him to tolerate idolatry in our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He says, our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion, and we can only cleave to one Lord. Every competitor to that devotion must be hated. In his perfect character, Jesus can well up with love and compassion for people while simultaneously hating the idolatry which challenges his lordship in their lives. This is how we're to understand the stern words of Jesus in this passage. So what does Jesus mean by this setting against, by this division? D.A. Carson explains verses 34 through 36 in this way. Of course he does not mean that his primary objective was division within families and larger units of society. He means rather that his firm commitment to his primary purpose, calling sinners to repentance, inevitably results in lives so transformed that in their direction and values, they will clash with the society from which they have emerged. 
So the main goal of Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels is to save sinners, yet division will always be the end result between the unbeliever and the Christian. The values and choices of an unbelieving family member are incompatible with the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the life of the believer. Don't hear me saying that this is easy, but this does mean that as a Christian, Jesus and no unbelieving family member should receive your ultimate loyalty. This means that Jesus informs all of your values, all of your ideals, all of your choices, and not any unbeliever. Unfortunately, our text does not get easier from here. Looking at verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Obviously, Jesus wants us to love our parents, and he wants parents to love children. But at no point should our love and loyalty for family trump our affection and allegiance for God. This is true even for those of us with Christian family members and Christian parents. I think that Jesus includes these words because even the best-intentioned and loving family members can be unaware of idolatry that is widely assumed as healthy and normal in our country. Families often value great things like togetherness or a comfortable and safe environment. But these things can subtly become more important than obeying the call of Jesus. This is idolatry. The words of Jesus communicate that he and no other person or family member, even if they are a Christian, is worthy of complete allegiance. As believers, we often get things mixed up, and instead of fearing God, we start fearing man. And by this, I don't mean that we're, we're afraid of people or afraid of our family members, but that we allow our family and our relationships to dictate the choices that we make. The fear of man and the fear of family leads us to care more deeply about the plans, values, and choices of our loved ones than the plans, values, and choices of God. God's word says that to love anyone above Jesus disqualifies us from being worthy disciples. I think that what lies behind our passage here in Matthew 10 is the fact that there are two competing kingdoms that are at odds with one another. There's the kingdom of this world, and then there's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of this world has several different, it has, uh, several different kings. It has a rotating door of kings, and family can be one of those. But the kingdom of heaven has only one king, and that's Jesus. Jesus has strong words for us here in this passage because he will not tolerate anything or anyone else taking his place as the rightful recipient of our undivided allegiance. I think that the kingdom of this world takes on different idols at different points and in different cultures. I'm going to take a quick time out from our passage to look at a few more things other than the fear of man that our American culture worships. I know that you're aware of many of these things, you're probably seeing a lot of them at their height as college students. Sadly, some of these idols and these sins that our society worships are accepted as healthy and normal by Christians as well. I want to address three idols other than the fear of man that our nation worships as functional kings. These idols challenge Jesus in the hearts and minds of countless American citizens, and we must fight against mindlessly adopting these idols since they surround us 
and are constantly praised by our culture. These four idols are fear of man, financial security, comfort, and safety. I'm not going to unpack each of these separately because they often go hand in hand and make up what many people refer to as the American dream. What more could we want than living in America, having a spouse and a couple of kids and job security, a couple of cars and living near family and having Jesus on Sundays? America is a nation that values comfort and safety and security above nearly all else. Any amount of pain or discomfort or suffering is a heinous thought to most Americans. And while God does not take joy in watching believers go through pain and discomfort and suffering, that's often where he refines our character most. Fear of man, financial security, comfort and safety are not necessarily all bad things, but striving after these things does not produce true discipleship in the lives of Christ's followers. Beyond these American idols, truly following Jesus can feel costly. If we're being honest, the call of Jesus here in verse 38 sounds really painful and difficult. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That sounds like the opposite of the American dream. That sounds like radical suffering, and that's because it is, because it deals with death. The death, however, that we're called to die is to our own self-will. God's desire is to graciously bend our own stubborn self-will into his perfect will for our lives so that we would confess the exact same thing that Jesus Christ does when he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. True discipleship is incredibly costly. I now have the task of convincing you that dying to yourself, dying to your will, dying to your plans, dying to the American dream for the sake of Jesus Christ, is worth it. Here is the key. We desperately need to fight against a cheap understanding of grace and fight for costly grace. Actually, I'm not going to do the convincing. I'm going to let Dietrich Bonhoeffer do that. He will do it much more eloquently than I ever could. He defines cheap grace as this. It is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as a Christian conception of God, no contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to the denial of the living word of God, in fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. What Bonhoeffer is saying here is that cheap grace sees that our sins have been forgiven, says thank you to God, and then just continues about our day. Cheap grace is a nice way to see that God is loving, and since our sins have been completely forgiven, there's nothing else that we need to do. Cheap grace requires nothing because it fails to dwell deeply on the fact that the Son of God left the infinite riches and pleasures and community and comfort and safety of heaven so that he could die a horrific and excruciating death on a cross where his own father turned his back on him. That is why cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace is giving someone who's in extreme need $5. That is grace. That is grace. 
costly graces, feeding them, clothing them, inviting them to live with you, and then adopting them as your own so that they can always enjoy the blessings of family. Listen to how Bonhoeffer explains costly grace. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. When we see the grace of God as costly, we stand in utter awe of the fact that he would become man and die in our place so that he can reconcile dead and rebellious sinners to himself. Not even the cost of his one and only perfect son stopped God from rescuing us. How can we not respond to this grace with anything other than awestruck worship, surrendered lives, and a passion to tell the world about Jesus Christ? We can only be motivated to incur the cost of obeying God by picking up our cross after we have fixed our eyes on our Savior, who has done this for us already. There are two incredible parables later on in Matthew in chapter 13 that highlight the fact that complete obedience to Jesus is a joyful experience filled with riches. Verses 44 through 46 say this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Both of the men in these parables take on great cost initially. They sell every single possession that they own, and they do it because the, the treasure and the pearl that they're going to receive is far more valuable than what they had owned previously. It says that they joyfully sold everything that they had so that they could purchase something far, far better. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary to the Aka Indians, puts it this way, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Brothers and sisters, you cannot keep family, money, safety, or comfort because all of these things are temporary. And you cannot afford to lose out on the eternal treasures and joy that are found in abandoning all else to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord. Our passage closes by saying that whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. True followers of Jesus are called to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." The kingdom of Jesus calls us to act in ways that are counterintuitive to the kingdom of this world. And we were not created for the primary purpose of enjoying the things of this world. We were created to be in perfect relationship with our God. And that means that the eternal treasures of knowing God is the only thing that can fully satisfy us. 
no amount of pleasing your parents or money or comfort or safety can ever bring you the joy that you're searching for because that's not how you were created to live. It's only when we die to ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus that we will live lives that are truly, truly given over to him. So I've always been a big fan of meditating on God's word and, and then applying it. And, and so I, I don't do this perfectly, but this is such a healthy habit to get into. So it does us little good to crack, crack open God's word, read it, and be challenged by it for five minutes, close it, and then move on with the rest of our days without meditating on it and applying it to our lives. I want you to consider the infinitely costly grace that God has given you and how that can be applied practically to the decisions and choices that you're going to make while you're here at Ball State and then after you graduate. What I'm asking you to consider is that there should be great cost in following Jesus Christ. What I'm not asking you to do is throw caution to the wind and make destructive choices in terms of money and time and safety. Keeping that in mind, there are several common objections that I hear from students throughout our movement when they're challenged to consider something costly. I often hear that their parents don't want them to go. I'm not calling any of you to disrespect or ignore your parents, but is there a chance that either you're making them a scapegoat for not stepping out in faith, or you're being disobedient to follow Jesus based on what we've seen here tonight in Matthew chapter 10? What about summer jobs and internships? That's one that always I hear every single year. Yeah, I'm not going to go on a summer mission. I have this incredible opportunity for an internship. That's what the vast, vast majority of college students do, and that's how they spend their summers. They invest in the temporary things of this world with no regard for the things of eternity. Knowing of God's costly grace, can you afford to spend three summers as a college student in the same way that every single other college student does? As I mentioned earlier, Jesus left the infinite riches and pleasures and community and comfort and safety of heaven so that he could die a horrific, excruciating death in our place. Since our Savior was willing to sacrifice the most costly riches imaginable for us, there can be nothing too costly that he can require of us. Since Jesus is a suffering Savior, how can we as his followers try with all of our might to escape any level of discomfort or sacrifice or suffering? Let me share a few potential ways that God might be calling you to pick up your cross, die to your own self-will, and follow him joyfully. You could choose to spend your spring break learning more about evangelism and being equipped to share the gospel and introducing incredibly lost college students to a God who loves them. Our annual trip to Panama City Beach has plenty of space. You can sign up. You just heard about that from Don. That is one of the best ways that you could invest your spring break. What about attending a crew summer mission? Summer missions very well might be the thing within crew that God uses most radically to impact the hearts and lives of college students. Invest seven to 10 weeks of your summer in God's kingdom by going to East Asia or Virginia Beach or Chicago, I promise that if you do, you will know God far, far better than when the summer began. 
Crew Summer Missions helps believers to stand in awe of God's costly grace, to worship him, obey him, and passionately share the gospel with people who desperately need it. Sarah and I both went to East Asia for summer trips. They were nothing short of life-changing. And that's what led us to choose to live in East Asia for an entire year so that college students, many of whom had never heard the name of Jesus Christ, could be reconciled to God. One and two year short-term international trips are stint. It's another great way to invest your life and follow Jesus Christ. I'm so proud of Ball State's commitment and legacy to sending college graduates over to East Asia. You know several of the centers who are over there and some of them aren't returning after this year. Would you prayerfully consider the fact that God might be calling you to take their place? You could also intern here at Ball State with crew. Several of you are already planning to do this after you graduate, and our team's really excited about that. Others of you can join these students so that Christ would be glorified on this campus. You can sacrifice your time by serving in your local church. Volunteers are always needed for the nursery, for children's church, for tech, for worship, for helping out in the community, for leading Bible studies. Vocation's another area where God calls some to follow in really radical ways. Please hear me say that it is wonderful that God calls people into the workforce. I could not be a missionary here at Ball State without a team of ministry partners who invest in the ministry here. If God calls you into the marketplace, I want to exhort you to act like the ministry partners that Sarah and I have and give sacrificially and give generously. Carrie and Eric have already shared about stewardship and treasure And if it is God's will for you to pursue your major into your vocation, it is God's will also for you to be a blessing to others with your resources. Please also hear me say this. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. I want you to seriously consider the fact that God might be calling you into a lifetime of vocational ministry. Go to seminary and become a pastor. Become a missionary here stateside or overseas. Until the Great Commission is fulfilled, there will always be a great need for laborers. I want to leave you to reflect on this quote by Jim Elliott. I didn't share this earlier, but Jim Elliott spent years praying for the Aka Indians before he headed to Ecuador to share the gospel with them. He had several encounters with them before one day he and his four missionary companions were murdered by the Akas. The good news of costly grace inspired Jim's widow, Elizabeth, and many other missionaries to continue pursuing relationship with the Aka Indians. Many of them responded to the gospel and will now be in heaven for eternity because men and women like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot counted the cost of discipleship and followed Jesus. Was Jim's life wasted? He died at 29. No. I would argue that That was one of the best invested lives in human history. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for costly grace. Thank you that you would send Jesus Christ to take on the penalty that we deserved. 
I pray that we would take seriously the call that we have heard here in Matthew 10 tonight and that with abandon, with fully surrendered hearts, we would follow you no matter where you call us, no matter the cost, and that we would do so joyfully because we get to know you intimately and step out in faith knowing that you will provide and that you're our prize. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you continue to work in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit to convict us to follow Jesus with reckless abandon. Amen.